It can be really hard for us to relax at night. We're always thinking about covering crime. But the good news is our wonderful new sponsor, Via, has a terrific product that helps us unwind. Via Hemp has a wide range of terrific gummies of both the THC and THC-free varieties. They can help you with focus, recovery, sleep, creativity, or just plain enjoyment. These products legally ship to all 50 states. I really liked Zen in particular. This is a yummy blueberry option that lets you catch a chill sleep with help from CBN and CBD. It's really helped me turn off my brain and settle down for the night. I also got a shout out Flow State. It helped me feel energized throughout the day. Like not to brag, but I got a lot done. I'm talking about doing several interviews and editing a whole show from start to finish, not to mention jumping on some of the latest filings in the cases we cover. It really made me feel sharp and ready to tackle any challenge. I couldn't recommend this more. Via has so many great gummy options to choose from. Everything from guava berry low dose that allows you to microdose THC to the chill-inducing Delta 9 gummy dreams. Head to viahemp.com and use code MSHEET to receive 15% off and one free sample of their award-winning gummies. That's viahemp.com and use code MSHEET at checkout. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. Enhance your every day with Via Hemp. Again, if you're 21 and over, you can get 15% off plus a free pack of award-winning gummies with our exclusive code, msheet at viahemp.com. That's V-I-I-A-H-E-M-P dot com. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Content warning. This episode contains discussion of the murder of two girls, as well as the sexual abuse of children. So we are live here in Peru, Indiana. The day is December 22nd, 2022, and we've just observed and reported on the latest hearing in Kegan Klein's child sexual abuse materials trial. And today we're going to talk with you about what we saw, what this hearing means, and what we can expect going forward in this trial. My name is Anya Kane. I'm a journalist. And I'm Kevin Greenlee. I'm an attorney. We first connected while looking into the Burger Chef murders, an Indiana cold case. Together, we built a spreadsheet documenting hundreds of cases of restaurant-related homicides. That original spreadsheet gave way to our podcast, The Murder Sheet. 
Now we maintain that same research-centric, investigative approach as we look into all sorts of homicides, including unsolved cases, historical crimes, and, of course, restaurant murders. We don't just chat about the headlines. Our podcast is a platform for our journalism. The Murder Sheet focuses on investigative reporting, thoughtful analysis, thorough research, and in-depth interviews. We're the Murder Sheet. And this is the Delphi Murders, Kegan Klein's December 2022 hearing. We are speaking to you from the Peru Library in Peru, Indiana, shortly after the pre-trial hearing. Uh, we're appearing here through the courtesy of Miss Carla, who is a 47-year employee of the library, who is days away from uh, retirement. So congratulations to Miss Carla. She's a local institution, and uh, she's a delight every time we come in here. So we really appreciate her. wanted to say we really appreciate the citizens of Peru. As I was in the parking lot trying to get some equipment we left in there, I ran into a very nice lady and we were chatting about the weather. I just feel like people here are super nice. I love coming up here. That's something we remark upon every time we come up here, but it's just a really, the people here are awesome. That's just what I'm going to say. I know it sounds sappy, but as we've done this case, it's such a horrible, heinous crime. And we want to emphasize that Peru is so much more than that. And the people here are terrific. So... I'm getting sappy for a moment. I apologize. <laughs> so today was a pre-trial hearing. There's lots of pre-trial hearings before a trial to work out some of the administrative details and other matters that need to be fully addressed before the trial itself begins. Because you want to make sure that everyone's rights are being protected. So there was nothing really earth-shattering that happened today. I think we're going to talk a little bit about the substance, and then we're going to discuss some of the other details we observed. Yes, and the goal of our coverage with the Delphi case in particular is to give you the really granular, in-depth look at this case and trial. So as we said, not an earth-shattering hearing, Nothing. no bombshells were dropped, but hopefully this can give everyone a little bit more of an on-the-ground analysis and on-the-ground look at what is going on in this case. And in fact, most of the hearing today was devoted to some old news, because I'm sure everyone listening recalls that back on November 2nd, 2022, the prosecution in this case filed a motion seeking to amend and change and alter some of the charges uh, against Kagan Klein. Mm -hmm. As of this morning... That motion had not been ruled on. Uh, this morning, though, be, be prior to the hearing, the prosecution in this case, the prosecutor is Peter Dietrichs, he filed a motion basically saying 
you should grant my motion to change the charges. Do it. <laughs> and here's why. Uh, it's tremendously important to so it's tremendously important to make sure that uh, the rights of a defendant are not violated. And so in principle, you can imagine a situation where a defendant spends a lot of time and energy and perhaps money preparing strategy for certain charges. And then like a week or two before the trial begins, he finds out those charges are being changed. And that wouldn't be fair. But in this motion that the prosecutor filed this morning, he said, hey, I filed this request to change the charges like over six months before the trial date. So it doesn't prejudice the defendant. It doesn't uh, violate Kagan Klein's rights. He has plenty of time to change whatever strategies he wants to change. So the court should go ahead and grant it. Right. And of course... What, what did the, the defense say today? Yes, yeah, so it would be up to the defense to push back against that if they did feel that Kagan Klein's rights were being violated. But actually, they were pretty cool with it. Uh, Andrew Aki is the attorney who is representing Kagan Klein. He and Kagan appeared together at the Miami Correctional Facility via Zoom in the court. So Kagan Klein was not physically present. Uh, I can describe a bit more about his appearance and sort of what we were seeing in a moment, but basically the thrust of what Aki was saying, and to be clear, Aki was doing all of the talking here. He, he's basically saying that we agree with uh, Mr. Dietrich's opinion here. We don't feel blindsided. We, I mean, when you think about it, basically the amended charges are essentially to a certain extent that they're dropping five charges, right? And then they're changing some of the charges. Then they're changing some of the charges to, to be, uh, and that's really more of a technical updating it to be current with the current statutes of the law, essentially. Yes. It's not like they're going from, you know, uh, child sexual abuse materials to, you know, jaywalking. It's, it's in, in fact, at one part, at one point during the hearing, uh, Judge Spar said, oh, it was a good catch because some of the th- laws that he was charged with violating had actually changed. So there was like different subsections and stuff that applied. So there was very technical reasons why some of these charges were altered. And I, I think it's worth going into that because I really feel that there, and I I think if I were an observer who wasn't reporting on this case, I would probably be doing the same thing. So I say this without judgment for anybody who is doing this, but there is a tendency to kind of apply narrative rules to things. And you say, oh, these, you know, there's all these activity that the charges were changed, some charges were dropped. It must be he struck a deal and he's ratting out, you know, whoever. And the reality is that in something as technical and complicated as like a criminal legal case, more often than not, it's just some boring thing like this. Like they have to update it because the, the charges aren't current with the current statutes or they couldn't quite prove some of the, you know, CSAM materials depicted certainly people who were underage, so they have to drop those. It's it's so much more technical, boring, and, um, you know, and that's not really satisfying, but that is how the law works. People sometimes will jump to the conclusion that any change in the charges is the result of some deal being made between Kagan and the prosecutor. We actually had word 
of some of these issues with the problems with the charges uh, months ago, uh, in like July, I believe. And so we can say definitively that these, um, these amended charges have nothing to do with any alleged deal being struck with Kagan and the prosecutor. Certainly, there have been lots of references to ongoing negotiations. So it's possible that at some point further down the line, there might be changes to the charges as a result of a deal. But that's not what happened today. No, and, and keep in mind, keep in mind that like we'd love things to be related. We'd love things to be able to connect the dots and take you through it because that's a more interesting story than we technically had to do this because the law has changed. But um, we're, we're going to, you know, we're going to give it to you straight and we want people should be informed with accurate information, not just making assumptions based on timing. Yes. You know, I mean, very, very much one thing that we've emphasized and one thing I want to emphasize again today is that Kagan Klein has not been charged with anything regarding the Delphi homicides. He's been questioned in regards to that, as we've reported. He's. He's certainly a major factor in that case, but he's not been charged with anything. And this trial that he's he's going towards, the CSAM charges, that is being kept very much separate from anything involving Richard Allen, and and has been proceeding separately from that, you know, for quite some time. It's a walled, it's a walled off case. Um, They're not trying to convict him of the Delphi murders here. They're trying to convict him on twenty five counts relating to child sexual abuse materials. So at the hearing today, as we said, the prosecutor said we'd really like these charges to be amended, like we asked back in November. The defense said basically we have no objection to that, and so the charges were officially amended as per that request back in November. Now the judge did say, do you want me to basically backdate this? So uh it was technically approved as of November 2nd, the day of the original motion. And uh, that's basically what they did. Yeah. And, you know, and basically, once again, it's the defense and the prosecution in complete agreement. It's not people arguing back and forth. They're like, no, no, you know, um, we want this or we want that. It's pretty much everyone kind of going through these technical procedures being like, yep, sounds good to me. All right. Thanks, everybody. See you in a few weeks. Yeah, that's another good point to mention. See you in a few weeks. The the pretrial conference today had been noted on the calendar as being the final pretrial before the actual trial. And that is no longer the case because originally the trial was scheduled to start in January. Now it's been pushed back to, I believe, May. So the judge actually started the hearing by saying, obviously, this is not going to be the final pretrial. And they've scheduled uh, the next pretrial for about 30 days from now on January 26th. Right. So we remarked earlier that we thought it was really unusual that uh, the last pretrial conference would be in December when the trial is not slated until May. But obviously everybody recognized that and they've uh, amended it to ensure that that won't be the case. And that seems reasonable because that's an awfully long gap (laughs) until trial and a lot of stuff can happen uh, before that. A weight loss journey can feel like a lonely struggle, but it doesn't have to be. For so many of us, lifestyle changes like deciding to lose weight, adopting a nutritious diet, and taking up fun exercises are all about putting our own health and wellness first. But it can be really hard to know where to begin. 
or how to keep the weight off once we've seen some progress. Quick fixes like soup diets and juice cleanses are unsustainable. There's a much better way to embark on this journey that over 200,000 people have already chosen. We're talking about the Roe Body Program. Here's how it works. Roe gives you access to one of the most popular weight loss shots on the market. Their Roe Body Program then sets up a comprehensive weight loss program tailored to your specific lifestyle, health status, and goals. In addition to the weekly shot, you get one-on-one coaching with a registered nurse. That can help you adopt and stick with lifestyle changes like exercise routines and nutritious diets. It's a comprehensive program that sees participants lose 15 to 20% of their weight in a year on average. But the real benefit is that you keep that weight off. This is weight loss at its most sustainable. With Roe, the average weight loss is 15 to 20% of your weight in one year, in conjunction with healthy lifestyle changes. EMI and other eligibility criteria apply. Go to roe.co slash msheet. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. Go to roe.co slash msheet. That's roe.co slash msheet. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And, um, you know, in terms of some impressions we wanted to share with you. As Anya mentioned, uh, Andrew Ackie, Kagan Klein's attorney, and Kagan Klein himself did not appear in person. Earlier, there were some other hearings where the defendants appeared in person, and maybe we'll talk about those in a moment. But Kagan Klein and his attorney were on video from the Miami County Jail. Kagan Klein wore a face mask, and his attorney, uh, Andrew Ackie, did not. Yes, Kagan Klein was as usual in his sort of prison or his jail garb, uh, orange and white striped shirt. He appears to have shaved his head to a certain extent. um, And, uh, you know, his, his face was mostly obscured by a blue surgical mask. So it was very much hard to read his expression. He said nothing out, you know that was audible to the to the Zoom audience. Um, but he spoke to his attorney yes. once, at actually least. a few times. Okay. Yeah, I saw him talk a few times. They kind of had quiet exchanges. Aki kind of covering his mouth, so you know nobody could read his lips. I guess um, but they, they communicated with one another. The big time that uh, I noted was near the end when uh, Judge Spar asked, will Kagan Klein appear in person in the next pretrial, or will the two of you continue to appear via video? And Aki leaned over and asked Kagan, 
what he thought, and there was a moment of very hushed conferring, and then Aki came back and said, we'll continue to appear via video. Yeah, yeah, that was the only time I really saw Kagan emote at all behind the mask. You know, like almost a shrug, I thought. It didn't seem like it was very animated. Is the implication that Kagan might be uneasy about appearing in person? Perhaps. Um, I mean, when you think about it, I feel like the Zoom conference works for all parties in the sense. Kagan Klein is part of a, a slightly more higher profile trial than many of the defendants who are coming in through the Miami County Courthouse. So that could ins- in- mean that he needs to be insured, you know, his safety. And that means extra manpower, more deputies taking him around, more law enforcement, maybe screening people at the door. That's more of a production than perhaps Miami County wants to endure at this time for pretrial conferences. And so, and then on the other hand, you have, you know, Kagan Klein, where, you know, maybe it's just more convenient and, and less scary to just be zooming in. Uh, the decision seemed to be Kagan's, and I wonder if Kagan saw some of the news footage of Richard Allen and heard some of the details of his appearance in court, Richard Allen being shackled and taken into the crowded courtroom, and perhaps Kagan Klein thought to himself, that's not something I want to go through myself. So maybe he was a bit scared. Perhaps, yeah. It's interesting. I didn't know that something like that would be even up to a defendant. I would have thought it would be the court's decision, but it's, I mean, I guess every court is run differently, so I'm not saying that there's a problem with it. I'm just more of talking through. Um, It's interesting the, the sort of things that could go into play there. Certainly, if Kagan Klein were to appear in person, I imagine there would be a much higher level of security at Miami County Courthouse than typical. Yeah, it's a lovely courthouse. It's it's a quiet courthouse. It's a courthouse that incorporates a lot of other offices that serve the community, other than just you know the criminal courts. And you know, we definitely always enjoy visiting. Um, In terms of Going back to the substance of the hearing, I think we've pretty much covered, basically, we're changing around some stuff. Everybody's okay with it. It's not really a big deal for the case. And let's meet again later. One thing that people are probably wondering is, are they negotiating? Do we have any glimmers of negotiations through this hearing? And I would say no, not specifically. I mean, I, I mean we didn't hear anything specifically that anybody saying, yes, we're negotiating, or no, we're not negotiating. I don't think we, I don't think we've heard anything to indicate the negotiations, you know, broken down. I believe last time we left off on the negotiation front, they were negotiating. Uh, There was a filing that indicated that Diedrichs and Aki were back at sort of the negotiation table. And there was no reason to uh, conclude that that had changed? No. So there could be things continuing to go on in the background. Some things that kind of were worth pointing out on that. Negotiations could be one of two things. They could be about the CSAM charges or they could be about Delphi. We tend to think that Kagan Klein is, is, is a person who has a troubled time telling the truth 
for most instances. So if if he were to negotiate something on Delphi, I believe that that would have to be strongly verified and corroborated by law enforcement and the prosecution before anything was finalized. So that would be, that's a long road is I guess what I'm trying to say. In my view, that would not be something where it's just snap your fingers and it's done. And I, I think, frankly, it might be difficult for a prosecutor to strike a deal with someone like Kagan Klein and not really upset large segments of the public. Yes, when you have somebody preying on children online, that's a pretty serious charge. And So I wouldn't think that they would give him a very good deal unless he gave them something very, very valuable. Right. It is something that we think about, though, as their discussion, as Carroll County authorities are sort of saying things like, you know, Prosecutor Nicholas McClellan saying things like, other actors involved, Doug Carter, uh, superintendent of the Indiana City Police, indicating that they believe other people could be involved. The fact that Richard Allen was charged with felony murder. All of this is indicating that there's something in the works. There's something that, that the investigation is cur- currently continuing to look at in regards to Richard Allen, who's currently the state's suspect who's been arrested and charged with the case that perhaps he did not act entirely alone. And perhaps there was an underlying felony that was occurring here that is connected to the girl's deaths that other people could face charges in relation to. So to us, that means it's still important to cover other angles like Kagan Klein in the interim, because it's, you know, as we're kind of hearing that and we're hearing other things, it makes us very curious to see how this is going to go. But I think, you know, given the the Delphi connection, I think it is really important to remember that these two trials are not linked. They're not linked by anything in terms of procedure. You know, this is very much Judge Timothy Spar's court, and the Delphi case is being tried by Judge Frangal. So it's it's not like a collaborative effort here to, to, you know, work in tandem. You know, it's different counties. We're in Miami County. And, of course, Allen's being tried by Carroll County. They're not passing back and forth, like, rulings or, or working together on that set. And, you know, it, they're very much like their own little kingdoms. Uh, I'm, I'm curious. Uh, of course, when we attended the uh, Richard Allen pretrial, uh, we subsequently made some comments on our opinions of how the prosecutor and the defense attorneys did. Do you feel that at this point, after attending two of the Kate and Klein pre-trials, do you feel like we have enough data to start uh, sharing impressions of the attorneys in this case? Not really. I, I honestly don't because it, we just haven't really seen them do anything. It's just been mostly kind of a holding pattern. So. Yeah, one big difference in this case as opposed to that case is uh, there hasn't been, no pun intended, there hasn't been much sparring in this case. Oh, jeez. Because basically, like, what happened today was, you know, Prosecutor Dietrich said, I'd really like to amend these charges, and the defense attorney says, yeah, that makes sense. 
we don't have any injections. They seem very much like uh, collegial professionals who are treating each other with respect. They're not really trying to fight each other. And like, I mean, to be fair, in the Carroll County hearing that we attended with uh, Nicholas McClellan for the prosecution and Brad Rosie and Andrew Baldwin defending Rick Allen, it's not as if it was a really combative or tense hearing, but it was definitely a lot more back and forth. So, I mean, I, I definitely see what you mean. I don't think it was necessarily disrespectful in the hearing, but it, it certainly it certainly was, we you know, one side wants one thing, the other side wants another thing. We have not seen that in the Kagan Klein case yet. It's been pretty much some one side asks for something and the other side is like, yeah, that's pretty reasonable. <laughs> also in the Richard Allen case, of course we had uh, prosecutor McClellan have a couple of press conferences where he shared his views and we had the defense attorneys in that case speaking with the press outside the courtroom and then issuing their own press statement and in, in this case, uh, the prosecutor, uh, the Miami County prosecutors haven't really talked to the press at all uh, about how they see the case and how they're proceeding, uh, at least to the best of my recollection. And uh, Andrew Aki hasn't been issuing press releases or giving interviews either. So that's also something that's different. Yeah, we've reached out to him for comment and we've always gotten a decline. Also reached out to comment to uh, Miami County Prosecutor's mm-hmm. Office. The prosecutor here is a man named Jeff Sinkovics, and he's not actually handling this case. The case is being handled by one of his deputies, uh, Peter Dietrichs. Yes. And in the previous Kagan Klein hearing that we attended, Jeff Sinkovics was actually at the table with Dietrichs. But today, Dietrichs was there alone. So, I mean, it certainly seems like a high-profile case, so probably something the prosecutor is like, looking at, but not necessarily he has to be present in every hearing. Yeah, uh, I guess the implication would be that Sinkovics has uh, faith in his team. Yeah. What do you think that the case against Kagan Klein will come down to, ultimately? Once we get to May, once the trial is actually underway, from the transcripts that we released and from just you know, the information contained therein and from the probable cause affidavit that Wish TV initially broke. You know, you have a person whose phones, devices, computers are saturated with child sexual abuse materials, like saturated with them. And he's acknowledged that those are his phones. It'd be one thing if uh, he was found with a phone that had this material on it, and he tried to argue that that was not his phone. Mm-hmm. But he's acknowledged that these are his phones. So it seems like there's a pretty solid case, and the probable cause affidavit in his case, even though it was redacted, seems to be pretty strong. Certainly on the surface, it appears much stronger than the probable cause affidavit in the Allen case. Oh, yeah. Um, and it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty damning evidence in, in the sense that you have all the stuff all, all over his phones. And then another aspect of, of the case regarding Kagan Klein is the catfishing, you know, reaching out to people, reaching out to underage kids. And, you know, he, he essentially seemed to admit that in 2020. He downplayed it as saying, well, I was reaching out to older kids. 
I think. But, you know, it, 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 it's sort of, um, you know, underage is underage. And he also uh, was, you know, seemed to allude to, he and investigators in the 2020 transcript that we released also allude to his prior confession and like, yes, I acknowledged I was doing this. I admitted to doing this in 2017. So those things kind of seem to indicate that it's a pretty strong case against this guy. And it'll be interesting to see what tack the defense takes once we get to trial. Are they going to be attacking the evidence? You know, uh, well, I mean... Basically, the defenses that a criminal defense attorney can make are, uh, I didn't do it. Mm -hmm. You can't prove I did it. Uh, The evidence you have that proves I did it, you can't use. Or I I did it, but I was insane. I had a really good reason. I did it, but I was insane, or I had a really good reason. (laughs) So you can't say, I had a really good reason for looking at CSAM materials, you can't do the, it seems like it'll be very hard to say I didn't do it. I feel like the the only option that I could see being feasible here is you can't use the evidence saying I did it. And I don't know what grounds that would be upon. Right. So I think if you're an attorney who recognizes there is a strong case against your client that you can't overcome, uh, that's typically when you when I start talking about entering plea bargain negotiations. Which, I mean, seems like it's not necessarily... I know you indicated that it would be very unpopular to plea out Kagan Klein, and we also reported previously that in July of this year, Doug Carter, the superintendent of the ISP, flew up to Miami County to meet with the prosecutor's office, basically to tell them, don't plead it out. So, I mean, that was obviously before Allen was arrested, but that seems notable. But at the same time, the fact that they keep on going into negotiations, what would that be for? <laughs> if not for a plea deal, they're not going to, I mean, they're not negotiating, you know, Zoom calls, I imagine. That wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't be going back and forth on that. You wouldn't think so. No. So, I don't know, it's like mixed signals in this. One thing that I would love to hear from people who, you know, maybe our investigators, maybe our attorneys, prosecutors, or defense attorneys, is one thing that's always really bugged me about the Kagan-Klein case, the Kagan-Klein angle in the Delphi case, is that this guy comes on the radar in February of 2017, and in that search, according to the police transcripts that we reported on, it is discovered that he has a trove of CSAM on his materials. That's immediately known from from what we're reading in the transcripts. And I don't know why that would be incorrect. But he's not arrested until August of 2020. So... That's odd. What happened? <laughs> why is that? You would think that... I know in, like, in, in, in some instances, if you're investigating, say, a heinous murder, you know, if you find somebody you know, who's a witness, but they were, you know, smoking pot. Maybe you don't want to charge them with smoking pot because you just want their story on, you know, what happened. So I I get necessarily holding the murder is more important than other crimes, but the crimes he's accused of committing and the, and the crimes that they discovered on his devices 
are so heinous and disgusting and harmful that I don't understand why that wasn't acted upon. Even if they said, hey, you know what? Like, we really don't think he's involved in Delphi. Fine. But but why not arrest him for the CSAM? I don't understand that. Hopefully, before this is all over with, we will have an answer to that. Yeah. Uh, earlier, to jump back a bit, I asked you for like kind of the differences between the attorneys in the Allen case and the attorneys in this case. It seems to me the obvious next question in that line of thought is, let's look at the judges. Oh, yeah, yeah. Judge v. Judge. How does Judge Spar seem to you generally, either on his own or compared to Judge Gold? Well, I, yeah, certainly on his own. It, it, I mean, I'm always very impressed with Judge Spar. He, first of all, we know from talking with people in the community that he has a very positive reputation. And I think we've seen him just live up to that, essentially. He's very, very patient with people in his courtroom, and he really, I think, addresses the defendants with a lot of respect. And when you, when you think about somebody in that position, you know, they've been charged with a crime, they're maybe pleading guilty, wh- whatever's happening, he's always approaching them not as, you know, somebody who's in trouble or not as somebody who's in trouble or needs to be scolded or needs to be put down, but he's very much approaching them with a level of respect and humanity that I think is admirable. Yeah, he seems very cool and collected and respectful and he efficient. He's not a person who wastes time. The, the first hearing, we actually got here early enough to, to attend two hearings before the Kagan Klein case. We were the first people in the courtroom, actually. I was pretty proud about that. We were looking around. No one else was there. We were just sitting there being awkward. <laughs> uh, the first hearing only took a couple of minutes. Uh, the second hearing involved someone who was changing her plea in a case. And Judge Spar took the time to really patiently and kindly walk this defendant completely through the process to make sure she fully understood what right she was giving up by agreeing to a plea. Yes. And he's quite friendly to the media. And I, I say that in the sense that, you know, there is a media seating at, at the Kagan Klein trial. That's always appreciated. Um and he also even has, has talked about possibly having one day where, you know, there might be some informational session for reporters who are covering this case. And so we very much appreciate that. But, yeah, I think he – I mean, they were even having Zoom technical difficulties today. And he – you know, that's something where – And what was interesting was the Zoom technical difficulties – Uh, affected the audio in the courtroom. It didn't affect the audio uh, between the judge and the jail because the defense attorney said, we can still hear you. But uh, Judge Sparrow wanted to make sure that the public in the courtroom also uh, could hear. Yeah, so we we always appreciate that. Um, Very impressed with Judge Sparrow. Yeah, I'm always impressed with Judge Sparrow as well. And um, I, yeah, he, he and... He and Frangel have some things in common, I do believe, um, in the sense that I very much feel Judge Frangel is much more no-nonsense on the surface. She's very much like, I'm not going to brick any, you know, like, we will destroy your phones. But I also feel like if pushed, Judge Spar would be willing to, like, lay down the law and be like, you know, no, no, no shenanigans, basically. 
they're able to command respect in that sense. Judge Spar seems a little bit more like kind of explaining everything, but I think we also saw that side of Fred, uh, of Judge Gull when she and the prosecution and the defense attorneys were all kind of like figuring out their schedules. She had a bit of a sense of humor about it. So I think I think there's some similarities there, but we've definitely gotten to see more of Judge Spars because we've attended more hearings. And of course, we will attend uh, another pretrial hearing with Judge Spar uh, in this case on January 26th. Yes. And I'm sure we'll do an episode uh, shortly thereafter. Yes. So stay tuned for that. And, and also, between now and then, yeah. obviously, we will attend the Richard Allen pretrial, and we'll be back every week with uh, episodes on these cases and other cases. And just note that, you know, we're, we're going to do these updates on these hearings. They may be granular. They may not be explosive. But hopefully they can document exactly what's going on and provide context for any specific questions you might have on the trial. So, you know, if you if you have any questions about anything that happens in the case, feel free to shoot them our way via email, murdersheet at gmail.com, because, you know, we can we can kind of be thinking about those as we continue to cover it. Basically, what we're trying to do with this is bringing some of the legal language and bringing some of the legal proceedings, um, you know, to the public in a way that is understandable and, and not necessarily clouded by some of the technical language. Just want to say thank you again to the Peru Library and to Miss Carla for being so welcoming to us. We very much appreciate it. And, um, and thanks to the citizens of Peru for always being so friendly and nice. Thanks so much for listening to The Murder Sheet. If you have a tip concerning one of the cases we cover, please email us at murdersheet at gmail.com. If you have actionable information about an unsolved crime, please report it to the appropriate authorities. If you're interested in joining our Patreon, that's available at www.patreon.com slash murdersheet. If you want to tip us a bit of money for records requests, you can do so at www.buymeacoffee.com slash murdersheet. We very much appreciate any support. Special thanks to Kevin Tyler Greenley, who composed the music for the murder sheet, and who you can find on the web at kevintg.com. If you're looking to talk with other listeners about a case we've covered, you can join the Murder Sheet Discussion Group on Facebook. We mostly focus our time on research and reporting, so we're not on social media much. We do try to check our email account, but we ask for patience as we often receive a lot of messages. Thanks again for listening.